Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. When I was little, a little boy, I had a treasure box. Do any of you remember having a treasure box? Might have been a, a shoe box. In my case, it was like an old recipe box, bigger than the, the little ones, you know, the, the big index card things. It was plastic, nothing really remarkable. But in there were my special things, right? And, and I ran across it a few years ago, and I just had to laugh at, you know, what a little boy considers special. An old railroad spike that I had found by the side of the railroad. Some fool's gold that one of my friends had brought back to me. Um, some uh, cards that were in there. What else? Oh, a penny that was flattened by a train uh, was in there. It's that kind of idea that Paul is talking about in today's gospel, or in today's uh, lesson, when he talks about us being stewards, right? Stewards of God's word, stewards of God's gift. And as we continue in our First Corinthians series, you might be thinking, man, Father Sean, th this is harsh. Paul is really coming down on the Corinthian people. But he's doing it out of love. He's doing it out of love. It's important to remember that. And I think our Old Testament passage actually shows us that. You know, Christian, uh, who, who read well this morning, but, but slipped up at the one spot, you said discipline, or disciple, I think, instead of discipline. And it's interesting that that's the same root, right? That God disciplines those he loves. And in that discipline, we're discipled. And so we saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Actually, God speaks to them making that point, right? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5, he says, Know then in your hearts that a man disciplines, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you, so that you shall keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you to a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you shall dig copper. And you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the, Lord, for the good land he's given you. What's God saying here to his people? He's saying, I'm preparing you, in this case, the Old Testament Hebrew people, to come to the promised land. And yet, through Christ, we can see this in what St. Paul's talking about with the Corinthians regarding the church regarding the land beyond death, right? Heaven, the new heaven and the new earth themselves. And we see here that the problem with the church is that they're not ready to accept God's gifts. And they're actually standing in the way of the church. 
as the church. It's paradoxical, right? So as we continue in chapter 4, I invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in our series, and you'll see that our texts are all about humility today. They're all about humility. It's not an easy lesson even understood, and an even harder one mastered. And I'm convinced that none of us will master the lesson of humility till the great beyond. (laughs) St. Thomas Aquinas writes on the Christian virtue of humility. He defines it to temper and restrain the mind, lest it tend to high things immoderately. To temper and restrain the mind, lest it tend to high things immoderately. And this belongs to the virtue of humility, and another to strengthen the mind against despair, and urge it on to the pursuit of great things according to right reason. He writes that in the Summa Theologica. Think about that. What's he saying? Humility not only humbles us, but this is interesting. It guards us against despair. It guards us against despair. Why is that? Because ultimately, humility is knowing our place in God's kingdom. And that's exactly what St. Paul is writing to the Corinthians about. We talked about it in Deuteronomy. John The Baptist demonstrates humility in John 3, talking about Jesus. And it's something that Jesus teaches us directly in Matthew 11, 29, when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Lowly in heart could also be translated humble or meek. That you will find rest for your souls. Do you see, St. Thomas is echoing Jesus himself. In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul is dealing with a church, however, who doesn't have humble people, but rather has arrogant people, and who don't want to accept discipline, but rather want to do it their own way. We've been talking about this since the opening chapter, haven't we? If you've got your Bibles open to chapter 4, If you open, yeah, if you have your Bibles open to chapter 4, you'll remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, that Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. But he has a charge against them, doesn't he? He says that he's heard, in verse 11, from Chloe, reports of quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? So do you see the problem that St. Paul's combating here? That you have people that are arrogant and therefore dividing the church by segmenting off the church. We talked about that last week. And here, Paul gets in to what virtue is the remedy for that. And the answer is humility. So look at chapter 4 with me. The first thing we need to dispel here is the fact 
that Paul is able to call them out. And there's a modern Christian idea that for some reason today we're not allowed to judge. Have you ever run into that? Paul is very clearly here judging. And he commands us in the next chapter to judge one another. So the first thing I want to do is dispel this idea that we cannot judge or evaluate. Now, people misuse Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. But if you actually look at that, you'll see Jesus is not talking about judging per se, evaluating, testing. Jesus is talking about condemning, judging one fit for hell. Okay, this is very different. Paul is talking about evaluating here and judging. The Greek word is krino. And in the Bible, we're commanded to judge, test, and evaluate by what we see. Jesus himself talks about knowing a tree by its fruit. The person that doesn't make judgments is a fool. Think about it. If you were to walk around in your world, whatever that might be, in your profession, and not make any judgments, you'd be a fool and probably quickly fired. What the Corinthians are doing here is not judging properly. They're judging Paul, and they're judging by what verse 3 calls the human court, by human beings, by our logic, by our standard, right? Look at chapter 4, verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, verse 5, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Remember last week in chapter 3, Paul has made the point about works. What are the works that will survive? The ones that come from the right heart. Chapter 3, verse 13. So the way the Corinthians are judging is improper because they're neither using the right metric nor do they have the entire picture. So how can they evaluate their spiritual immaturity is showing. Their perspective is wrong. And if they were judging properly, they would be humble and submissive to the apostles and working together with their local leaders. So they have not just the wrong metric, not just the wrong attitude, they have an improper lens. And that's here what St. Paul's addressing. An improper lens to evaluate. It's skewing them, it's sending them off course. And perhaps most importantly, because of that, they can't even judge themselves rightly. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, Paul says, that you may learn by, not by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. The Greek behind that word puffed up is the word noumena which coincidentally also has to do with the spirit, right? To be puffed up, pneumatic, 
right? We get that word in English, a pneumatic pump is an air pump, right? So Paul's saying they're puffed up. They can't even look at themselves properly. And if we think about it, this is something that we all struggle with, right? That we can't see ourselves properly. It's a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. We can't even perceive how we are and what we are. Baptist commentator David Garland makes the point that we as human beings are constantly in a cycle of inflating our own judgment of ourselves and deflating others and then crashing down. Think about that in your own life. Have you experienced that? I know I have. We inflate ourselves, puff ourselves up by deflating other people, but then what happens? We fall into despair. We crash down and we say, oh, well, I, because we know it's a lie. <laughs> you know, we, we know that we're wrong about ourselves, right? C.S. Lewis calls this the law of undulation, that we go back and forth, right, continually between us, not having a right view of ourselves, not having humility. The Christian virtue is to moderate that law of undulation to keep us more centered so that we're not overly puffed, but we're not overly despairing, that we have a right view of ourselves. But the Corinthians have not, do not have that. You see, the problem is they're inflating themselves and they're deflating Paul and Apollos and the other apostles. As we continue in 1 Corinthians in our series we'll see that this is a perennial problem that causes lots of issues in the church. Let's continue. Verses 8 through 10. Already you have all you want, Paul tells the Corinthians. Already you have become rich without us. You have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Do you see how their lens is distorted? Do you see how Paul's calling them out on it? In their lens of evaluation, the judgment is way off. And in their lens of evaluation, things are upside down. What they think of proof of their goodness and their, and their spiritual maturity is actually proof of their spiritual infancy. You know, I had a professor in seminary that said, a little knowledge is dangerous. <laughs> and that's what we see going on here with the Corinthians. They're applying what little knowledge they have and puffing themselves up. St. Paul, and this is one of those funny passages in the epistles, goes on to mock them. He's mocking them. He doesn't actually think they're wise in Christ. Look at this. Verse 10, again. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse 
of all things. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Does he really think they're wise? Does he really think they're rich? No, he's making the point, as we say in the country, you've gotten too big for your britches. Right? You've puffed yourselves up. You think yourselves so superior. But are you really superior to the apostles? To those who are being whipped, driven from place to place, suffering, martyred? Just see what he's setting up here. He's making them see how foolish they are. The Corinthians are living the good life, and their judgment of themselves, they foolishly presume that the gifts that they've been given are due to their own effort and due to their own goodness. Once in a while, being a political scientist, these things pop up in my mind. My mind works strangely, I know. But do you remember back when Mr. Obama was president, and uh, there was some debate going on, and uh, I can't remember what the political debate actually was, but he was saying that no one builds on their own, and then the conservatives were coming back and saying, no, we, you know, we build on our own, right? So I think the, the, the tagline was, you didn't build that. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Both sides were wrong, right? As often is the case. When we build something, we don't build of our own effort. We always depend on other people around us. The Republicans were wrong. On the other hand, the Democrats were wrong. Because when we build, we don't just build off of our own community. We build with our own selves, with the gifts that God's given us. What St. Paul here is saying is to the Corinthians, you're, both, you're wrong. It's, it's, it's what God's given you that you're able, by which you're able to build, do you see? By which you're able to build your spiritual house, by which you're able to build up the church. But there's a lack of gratitude and perspective here. Scholars aren't sure whether Paul's speaking of physical riches that the Corinthians have, or spiritual riches, but I don't think it matters. I think both apply. Are they literally well-dressed, honored, and living as kings? Perhaps. This upwardly social-mobile community in Corinth? There's evidence of that in the rest of the book. Or are they spiritual living as, living, spiritually living as kings, thinking about their spiritual gifts? There's also evidence of that in 1 Corinthians. But, you know, Paul's warnings to them hit both equally hard. To the first set, it's a criticism against what we call today the prosperity gospel. You've all ran across this at one time or another. It goes like this. If you're in God's will, you'll be abundant and wealthy and everything will be given to you. Right? Best encapsulated in the Mercedes driving down I-90 with the license plate that says blessed. It's all decked out. I've seen that. Maybe a Cadillac. I'm not sure what it was. But that's the idea of the prosperity gospel. Then there's spiritual gifting. People that can preach really well or can teach really well or have the ability to organize or have the Holy Spirit's power to heal or encourage, but they make it about themselves, right? They make it about themselves. They say, I am the healer, or I am the prophet. Come to me. 
Africa struggles with both of these, but so does the United States. It's, it's just more nuanced. And Paul comes down on both. Paul admonishes both. Look at verses 14 through 16. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Paul is telling the Corinthians they've got the world upside down. They're not seeing things as they ought to be seen. And he brings home the point that those that are spiritually mature are not always those that are wealthy and rich, either spiritually or physically, because just look at the apostles and just look at Jesus Christ himself. When we're being heaped praise from our world around us, that's a warning sign. It's not a guarantee that we're outside of God's will, but it's a warning sign that we're on the brink of it. Narrow is the road to the kingdom of heaven. The key to right judgment of ourselves, evaluating ourselves and those around us, is humility. But more than this, our humility is grounded in the reality that we make nothing of our own and all things are thanks to God. It all goes back to the very beginning of this passage. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, Paul writes, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Do you see, Paul's being so hard on them because they haven't just called to be servants but to be stewards of the very mysteries of God. St. Chrysostom writes, a steward's duty is to administer well the things that have been entrusted to him. The thing of the masters are not the stewards, but the reverse. What is his really belongs to the master. But Paul's giving the Corinthians a great opportunity to shun their arrogance and turn in humility and discipline themselves before he has to come and do it. Look at the final part of the passage. Verse 18, Some are arrogant, as although I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with the love and a spirit of gentleness? What's he saying to them? As your spiritual father, do you want a spanking? <laughs> or do you want encouragement? <laughs> Just see, Paul's saying it's better to embrace the humility than be humbled. In conclusion, in being humble, we're doing nothing short of imitating Jesus Christ who went to the cross for us. In being stewards of the mysteries, we hold nothing else but the gospel of Jesus Christ which was given to us 
by faithful people. There's a principle of faithfulness here in addition to humility. Rapid success is not what's required of God's ministers or his people. Faithfulness, steadfastness, and trustworthiness is what's required of us. And there's a warning here against those in the church who are forever examining their ministers. You ever run across those folk? They're not just testing what the minister is saying, but they're looking for faults. There's, there's a warning here against that attitude. But there's also a warning to ministers, right? That we don't have the right to come up with anything new. We don't have the right to change anything that's been handed down to us. We are stewards. And you see, this principle goes not just for we as, or for me as a priest, but for you as a minister of the gospel. It's a warning to us because it's a mystery and a gift and a treasure that's been given to us. Going back to that box, it's so much more than that treasure box of a little boy. What's been deposited with you and me is nothing else but the saving work and words of Jesus Christ. So let's take that seriously. Let's treat his church well so that it can proclaim that and enable it to be done in our world. Let's pray. I close with a prayer from St. Thomas Aquinas. From all pride and its effects, deliver me, Jesus. From coveting greatness for its own sake or to excess, deliver me, Jesus. From contempt of you and your law, deliver me, Jesus. From a puffed-up self-image, deliver me, Jesus. From claiming to be a self-made man, deliver me, Jesus. From ingratitude for your gifts, deliver me, Jesus. From thinking that I have earned your gifts by my effort alone, deliver me, Jesus. From boasting of having what I do not have, deliver me, Jesus. From excusing my faults while judging others, deliver me, Jesus. From wishing to be the sole possessor of the skills I have, deliver me, Jesus. From setting myself before others, deliver me, Jesus. From all vain glory, deliver me, Jesus. Amen.